It's Simon, and this is Turning the Tables, a podcast dedicated to the stories of people who have come through adversity to find new fulfilment and meaning. And a big welcome to the second in the mini-series on mental health with my guest, Dr Liz Miller. Liz is a one-off, the first woman in neurosurgery in the UK, a physician, campaigner and writer noted for her outspoken mental health views and someone who has lived with bipolar disorder for much of her life. Liz was sectioned three times, but has come through to manage her condition without medication, relying on nutrition and psychological strategies she's developed from her own research. There is no doubt Liz has a unique view of the world of mental health from both the sufferers and the neurology perspectives. Featuring in Stephen Fry's groundbreaking documentary The Secret Life of a Manic Depressive, Liz played a part in the shift in perceptions and attitudes towards people suffering from depression and mental health issues. In 2008... Liz was voted Mind Champion of the Year by public poll for her work in the Doctors' Support Network, a support group for people in the medical profession with mental health challenges. Yes, mental disorders have no boundaries. In our wide-ranging discussion, we talked about the neurology of depression, how despite being part of the medical profession, Liz suffered prejudice because of her bipolar condition. And then there was another time I was at a meeting, at a royal, it was, um, we were all having a buffet lunch, it was the Royal Society of Medicine. Anyway, I joined this, sitting next to this psychiatrist, and I, the conversation was getting a bit boring, so I said, well, I had bipolar, at which point, <laughs> <as> you do, <laughs> at which point he picked up his plate and left. <laughs> I thought... And I was, you know, various experiences like this over the years. Her experience working with Stephen Fry on the programme. It was certainly, it was a very big event. Changed people's perceptions. People really did, you know, began to, you could talk about it and you couldn't before. The strategies and coping mechanisms she has developed and published based on her mood mapping research. And finally... Liz's advice to people living with mental health challenges. I think you've got to be kind to yourself. It's absolutely crucial. You know, as I said, learn compassion from my experiences. And you have to be compassionate towards yourself. And you have to say, am I talking to myself as I would talk to my best friend in a similar situation? Before we jump into our conversation, once again, I'd like to thank the Alliance of Independent Agencies who have partnered with Turning the Tables on this mini-series. The Alliance are an organisation that take the mental health and well-being of people in the agency sector seriously. Their Wellbeing Action Group promotes the importance of creating safe environments and building people's resilience. They even have an annual festival of happiness, as well as promoting training for first aid champions. If only every industry had this kind of support. Now let's get into my conversation with Dr Liz Miller. 
you're in a reasonably well you're in a very unique situation in that you're you know you're a trained physician a neurosurgeon you've obviously campaigned for mental health and you've actually had a significant mental illness in bipolar which i guess puts you in a pretty good position to talk about the subject both sides of the blanket i think is yes. one way of looking yes. at it yes um the debate I mean, it's now, I think, past. And it was just coming out of that era when, on the one hand, you had the mental health is a social construction, mental ill health is a social construction, as opposed to the biological approach, it's just an illness. Yes. And actually, there was a voice when I was in the 80s, still from the it's it's all in the mind and and, um, Patch Adams, I don't know, there's a film, Patch Adams, loved it. Um, about him, who was an American physician, still pushing the point of view that mental illness is a construction. And I was sort of of that persuasion. So having had bipolar, I know absolutely, you know, it's not made up, it's not a construction, it's a real illness. Now, probably the circumstances that lead to it have got a lot to do with environment. Because there's no history of bipolar in the family, no previous mental health problems, um, you know, apart from the fact they're all <laughs> suitably dysfunctional. But no... That's diagnosis. like all of us, though. <laughs> yeah, no diagnosis. And so it did come out of the blue. However, I was in Edinburgh. I'm, I remember being totally cold before, before getting a real sort of chills. And so, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the cause is still up for debate. Could be anything from a virus um, to stress because I was away from friends, family, etc. I was getting a lot of stick at work because I was the woman and I'd been billed as the brightest young thing in neurosurgery up from the south. So, of course, they all hated me quite naturally. Right. I was the first woman in neurosurgical training in the UK doing some quite exciting research. So, the, the situation was there, ready-made, under high stress, etc. you know, to, to pull in all of the environmental factors. And basically, I had a ten, 10 years that were quite bad. And then I ended up, well, I ended up in several mental hospitals, and I spent over a year under section. But finally, I ended up on a ward for doctors, doctor's mental health ward at the Bethlehem Hospital. But... Basically, I was with other doctors, and that gave me the beginning of insight. I'm thinking, well, maybe actually I have got a problem. You know, this isn't all them just locking me up because they don't like me, which is the sort of natural paranoid delusion we all fall into. And after that came self-management, work with the Manic Depression Fellowship. Then I started the Doctor Support Network, which was for other doctors with mental health problems. Did quite a lot talking about mental health, coming out as a, you know, I mean, as a doctor with mental health problems. And it wasn't, I mean, I was thinking about how did I turn around adversity? Well, it's not that I turned around adversity. I think I was just left with my back to the wall and no choice because I hadn't got a current. The minute, the, the point is the minute anybody found out in medicine that I'd got any kind of mental health problem, I was out of a job. And I've lost a number of jobs over the years simply because doctors are the most prejudiced of all 
humans about mental illness. And it sounds bizarre. I was going to say that's that's somewhat ironic, isn't it? It's out doubt in my mind, having been, as I say, both sides of the blanket, everybody is, it's, it's a little bit like the coronavirus. You've had mental illness, sorry. I mean, one time I was doing a TV program, one of the patients saw me, went, and I'd been in this job 12 years, went to the principal of the practice and said, oh, I saw your Dr. Miller in the TV. That was excellent. And he goes, what? (laughs) Then he goes to the Family Health Service Authority, finds out he can't sack me, and then starts being extra nice, at which point I thought, I can't stay here. And then I began at locum. You know, I did mainly locums after that but yeah I and then there was another time I was at a meeting at a royal, it was um we were all having a buffet lunch it was the Royal Society of Medicine anyway I joined this sitting next to this psychiatrist and I conversation was getting a bit boring so I said <laughs> well I had bipolar <laughs> which as, you point, <laughs> as you do <laughs> at which point he picked up his plate and left oh god <laughs> I thought and I was, you know, various experiences like this over the years, you know. As as someone who obviously had that level of medical training, yeah. how did that, I mean, as an individual, because obviously there's you, the person, and then, then there's your profession and your skills and everything. How did you cope with bipolar given your knowledge and given your expertise? Well, first of all, I'd been to boarding school. And even the worst locked ward is not, well, it's on a par with a bad boarding school. (laughs) So that was a good, you know. (laughs) Training. Good training. Um, It was a real sort of dinosaur of a school. The other thing was the training in neurosurgery was probably invaluable because as a neurosurgeon, you know, you are the aristocracy of medicine. You know, you, you, you're, there's no question, neurosurgeons, you know, we, we, we know more than any other doctor, and that goes without question. I don't know if it's still true, but it was certainly true in my day. You know, we ran the ITU, we despised every other medically qualified person. So when the psychiatrist come along telling me I've got bipolar disorder, my instant reaction is, what do you know? So it meant that I didn't, I wasn't frightened of their diagnoses. You know, it was just as far as I was concerned, their opinion. They'd done no physical tests, nothing material. Now, it took me 10 years to accept that I probably did have a problem. But it was certainly nothing the psychiatrists could throw any light on. How did you deal with it on a day-to-day basis? I mean, were you able to carry on work or did you have to stop work? How, how did you manage it? I haven't worked. I did go back to full-time work after the first episode, and I haven't really managed full-time work after that first episode, after that first time. I think, how did I, you get better. You know, the mind heals. And I think one of the things, the battles that I used to have in the doctor support network the whole time was everybody, doctors want to work, or they did, used to. Everybody was saying we should be able to work. And one of my main arguments was that you can work when you're well, but not when you're ill. And and that for me was tremendously important, is that doctors should be allowed to get ill, they should be allowed to get better, and then they should be treated like anybody else who's been ill and got better. You know, I'm not asking for, you know, I wasn't asking to get back my neurosurgical career, but any kind of job would be nice. And it was only when, you know, I'd exhausted 
most of my options, that I actually said, well, look, you know, this is ridiculous. And that's when I started speaking out. You were in the uh, Emmy award-winning documentary in the 90s, The Secret Life of a Manic Depressive, with Stephen Fry. And then in 2008, you were Mind Champion of the Year. So I was interested to understand a little bit about those two experiences. Start with the programme. It was groundbreaking. And Stephen Fry was the first celebrity to actually come out and say, I've got bipolar disorder. And, mm. and it then after that, it almost became fashionable. What was the experience of actually doing the programme like? Stephen Fry, I love him to bits. He is a perfect gentleman. He's a total delight. And he's very generous. And, and whatever, you know, because I've just sort of, you know, kind of been come off the streets, whatever. He's great celebrity. And he always gives you the equal or the starring role. Whenever there's you and him in the room, it's like he always lets you have the have the stage. And he's delightful. For instance, one time I was making coffee for the camera crew. And and he comes into the kitchen and hands around all the cups because we're sort of filming at home. I don't think I need him in my everyday <laughs> life. You know, he's, he's, he's delightful. Um, and, you know, and, and, um, and then at one point, it was like three days we were trying to, you know, demonstrate what, how does having bipolar affect your life. And so he says at one point, well, just throw a dinner party and we can, I can talk to some of your friends, you know, and see what they think of you. <laughs> anyway, you know, but he was absolutely great. Luckily, I managed to get together a sort of band of people who came up, you know, who just sort of descended on the house with food, with, you know, set the table, everything like that. So it was organized in about, you know, under 12 hours, as it were. But he was absolutely wonderful because he said hello to everybody. Everybody who wanted to talk to him, he said hello to. And then we had a look in the workplace. Um, so he came into my workplace and nothing boosts your credibility more than to say, oh, meet my friend Stephen Fry. He's just in town. <laughs> and he was again, you know, he said hello to everybody and made them all feel special. So my street cred went through the, through the roof. It was brilliant. Post shooting it and filming it, how was it received publicly and did it affect you in any way? Looking back, it was a watershed moment. And I think out of the six people who, and he was dealing really with people who'd been sectioned. I mean, I'd been sectioned three times and everybody in the program was had had serious problems. Over the next few years, two people who were on the program actually died, um, and one at right. least from suicide. So... There always is a hope when something like this happens that things are going to change, and it's not like that. I think it was certainly it was a very big event, changed people's perceptions. People really did, you know, began to you could talk about it and you couldn't before. But the impact that has is a very slow shift. Yeah, yep. nothing changes overnight. Evolution, not revolution. Yeah, no. absolutely. The documentary's got a long tail because people are still watching it. No, I'm sure it was the beginning of a sea change. And I guess Stephen Fry has been at the forefront of changing people's attitudes. And obviously there, there are more people now that come forward and talk about yeah. it. But 
he did a huge amount of work in the two years following the program, you know, attending events, opening thing, you know, events, speaking to people. It was brilliant. He was absolutely, mm-hmm. you know, enormously grateful for the work he could do. Yeah. Well, well done you. Mind champion of the year, 2008. It was the year after Stephen Fry and the year before Alistair Campbell. And I think it came out of my work with the Doctor Support Network. Because, you know, you don't really know who nominates you and it's all, uh, or who votes for you or even that you've been nominated. But I got invited to the lunch and I had absolutely no idea that I was even in the running. I've never won anything in my life, at least all been voted or whatever. And sure enough, and at which point I have absolutely nothing in my mind to say at all, you know. You know, and I didn't want to do a sort of Oscar thanks to everyone, you know, thank you, so-and-so. But what I did manage to come up with was... The, the motto, as it were, for the Doctor Support Network, which is learn to be kinder to yourself and others. And I think that's still highly, that was the motivating, that was what we felt representative of the Doctor Support Network. Tell, tell us about mood mapping. Mood mapping is the method I devised that worked for me to enable me to manage my mental health such that I could come off all medication and be confident that I wasn't going to go back there. And, I mean, first of all, I had to end up in a pretty bad place, you know, no work, nothing, before I started to take the problem seriously. Um, and then I started, I started off by journaling, and I think everybody needs to journal every day because it's a really good time and it's a really – you know, even if you only spend five minutes, ten minutes, half an hour, just writing down, and I, and I have a little routine. I do my mood map, and I've got some post-its, and they basically got a, yeah, a horizontal and a vertical line. Mm-hmm. And the vertical line is energy, and the horizontal line is how good or bad you feel. Having journaled for inten- quite intensely, and I, uh, you know those big A4 diaries you can get, which have two pages per day. Filled one of those plus some sheets just about every day for all three, four years. I realized that it came and I was asking questions like, how much money did I spend? How many, you know, you know, was I making too many jokes? Was I inappropriate? Did people's eyes glaze over when I was talking to them? Um, You know, did they just politely walk off or did they pick up their plate and leave? (laughs) What was going on? I came down to the two things that determined whether or not I was going to have a good day was how good or bad I was feeling and how much energy I had. And the vertical axis is how much energy you have. And the horizontal axis is how good or bad you feel, which gives you four quarters, as we saw there. Yeah. On the, on the diagram. Oh, well, anyway, yeah, you get four quarters. And what one of the myths of bipolar is that when you're high energy, you're having a good time. Now, I was not. You're not necessarily having a good time. You might be rushing around doing a 10,000 things, but you're trying to save the Earth, you know, from invasion by aliens, the IRA or whatever it is. It, it's, for me at least, was highly unpleasant experience. But for me, it was a state of paranoia, stress, awfulness. I really, you know, being high was not good. The little first bit was quite good because you could get lots of things done, but once you, you know, once it got out of hand. So the thing to go back to the, the cross, the, the big um, square Your thing, map, yeah. 
is that it gives you four moods. And these are the four basic moods. And moods are not emotions. We can talk about the difference between moods, emotions and feelings and attitudes because they, they originate in different parts of the brain. But moods, I believe, and, and this is a consistent definition, it, it works with everything that I've read, even though it may not be the de definition in psychology. Um, and I'm entitled to say that because I got a degree in psychology on the way. And I'm a member of the British Psychology Society, so they can take it up with me <laughs> if there's a problem. But the thing about a mood, it's like the background, it's the landscape. And I see it as something very biological because I believe it comes from the brainstem. And there's a lot of neuroscience to back this up. It comes from deep in the brain. It comes from your fight and flight reactions to stimuli. And so high energy is the sympathetic nervous system, which is the fight and flight one, getting you ready for action. Now, the top right of the four quarters is the action mood, high energy and positive well-being. But there's also another mood which is equally important, and that's low energy and being positive, and that's calm. And this is the most underestimated mood because a lot of people think I'm only happy if I'm high, and normal people think that too. But actually, if, if you look at kind of gurus, meditation, concentration, lots of music, there's actually great joy in being positive but at a low energy level. And the people who manage their moods are the ones who can raise and lower their energy as they want. And, and for me, that's an ideal. And it's very bound up with physical well-being. And on the right-hand side of the graph, which is the positive side, you've got action, you've got where you can plan, where you can see the future. And on the left-hand side, which is the negative side, because if you've got the horizontal vertical axis and then you've got the well-being axis, on the right-hand side, the good side, is your positive well-being. But you have negative well-being when you're really just surviving. You're trying to make it from one day to the next. And a state of high energy negativity is stress. Now, a little bit of stress is fine because you can rebound from it, come across back to the right side. And in fact, sometimes a little bit of high energy stress is quite useful to spring you back into the positive. Only it's not a sustainable state. And that's when stress starts to do its damage is in this top left quadrant when you can't get right. And then when you run out of energy, you become depressed and exhausted. And there's a very strong biological component to depression, which comes back to the brainstem, because that's where the biology of growth, recovery, all the positive features of digestion it's all all the basic housekeeping the basic housekeeping functions work out in the brainstem you then go up higher the level of the brain spent mid mid brain and that's when you start to get a more sophisticated do i feel hungry yes maybe i do should i go to the ivy or will a mcdonald's do and that's like a higher level of decision around hungry but at the mood which is the most basic, is right in the clockwork. And it's those four moods which I think are key. You need to manage your mood. And certainly 
how you think can change your mood. If you continue to think depressive thoughts, you will depress your mood. Um, but equally, if you wake up full of um, beans, then nothing's going to stop you. Can I view the well-being? That's like your assets. You can bank. If you're really feeling good, you can recover. But when you've eaten into your assets, there's not a lot to bank on, whereas your vertical, the energy, is like the cash in your hand. Just go spend. <laughs> well, I used to joke about having manic depression. I used to say most people save for their holidays. I save for my next episode. Um, <laughs> Uh, yes i i get that and and that's really interesting and i guess that the whole specter of of mind management is becoming much more of a um thing uh in the sense of you look at the writings about it or you look at work of people like you know eckhart tolle and people like that you know that, that there is much more understanding of that, but it still feels like it's it's the preserve of a minority, and it, I sort of wonder what your thoughts about how do we get a much greater awareness of the whole issue of mind management, so that people are able to better cope with these these um, illnesses. First of all, I think mean, talking about it is absolutely great. You know, there, wasn't, there weren't the words 10 years ago, 15 years ago, even 20 years ago. There wasn't the vocabulary. People just didn't know how to describe it. And, and mood mapping, the book thing, was part of, I think, you know, it's made a difference in the sense that it was part of the dialogue. And so I think that we've now got words for these sensations and feelings is progress. The other side of things, and, and this is really, I am, of course, writing a book, you know, but, but essentially what we have now is we have a, psychologists, we have toll, we have all of these specialists, and each is stuck in their own silo. And it's a little bit like the more research we do, the more incompatible truths we discover. And what I'm very keen on, because partly because of my own background with neuroscience, with, you know, the experience with psychology. I've got an MSc in psychology and my experience with psychiatry. So I, I also, you know, I've done all the reading um, about the psychiatry of various conditions. Um, these, you cannot have, we live in a material world and you cannot have incompatible truths in a material world. So, What's actually needed is to synthesize the knowledge that neurosurgeons, for example, have about the brain, which is so wildly separate from that of psychiatrists, from that of psychologists, from that of, you know, all these subspecialties. And we actually need to, to look for a whole truth. And, and that's what I, I'm working on this book at the moment, and it may take me another 10 years to write it. But essentially, it's, the, the title is Brains, Biology, and Be Being. And, and it hopefully draws together my experiences of all of these three arenas. Because you can't get away from the structural hardware of the brain. So just taking you back to your own experience. So as a 
because obviously you've navigated this subject for many, many di- dimensions. I mean, as a as a human being, having to live your life with bipolar, what have you learned from that experience? I think two things. First of all, I've I've really had to learn to take care of myself. But also the, the other thing is it with the bipolar, it broke the medical model for me because before that I believed in medicine. And then when I kind of got bipolar and I saw what was going on in the rest of the world and I you know, left the neurosurgical, the you know, ivory towers of neurosurgery and had to grapple with real-world problems and yeah. real-world conditions. And it's made me more compassionate, actually. In it, you know, it really has, because I absolutely you know, whatever I see, whoever comes through the door, it's like, there but for the grace of God go I. Hmm. And I think that that, more than anything, is probably the, the greatest thing. It, it, it humbled me, because, you know, here I was, you know, could have been Kamala Harris, really, you know, first woman in neurosurgery heading for the heights, you know, this fantastic research going on, you know, Nobel Prizes, you know, bring them on, you know. Um, and then to discover yourself in a locked ward is quite a come down. And it is this business about you've got to put your own life mask on first. And I think it was Abraham Lincoln who said, you don't help the poor by being one of them. And you don't help sick people by being sick. You know, you help them by coming back. I suppose one of the things that I I think is very important is to understand it's not personal. What happens to you is not personal. You know, we're not victims of life. You know, I think, you know, I'm going to abuse my parents here. They're both dead, so they can't complain. But basically, I don't think they would have been any kinder, more understanding of any child in their care. You know, and I look at my brother and they weren't particularly, you know, brilliant with him. It wasn't personal. That was their own dynamic. And I think their problem was the war because they were, you know, children, uh, well, both of them served in the Second World War. And I think we've got an awful lot of trauma still left over from the 20th century. And and um, I think, George, you know, there's a few people like Jordan Peterson who are still exploring that, you know, the thing of what makes people evil. Mm. But... One of the things is it's not personal. This is just where you happen to land on this planet. And I think it's very important not to take it personally because if you take it personally, you start a personal vendetta. You know, and there's no doubt the medical profession were pretty shitty (laughs) as far as I was concerned, but it wasn't personal. I was the victim. No, I wasn't the victim, sorry, because this is the whole point I want to make, is the point is I was the casualty of their belief system. And I think we have to stop using that dreadful V word and start using casualties hmm. because, you know, you get casualties of war or victims of war and the casualty is just unlucky. Wrong person, wrong place, wrong time. The victim, it's personal, it's disempowering. You know, what can the victim do? Nothing. You've got to stop being a victim. You can accept you're a casualty and we're all casualties of our upbringing. And, and, and I think that's a very, it's very important to realise this is not about you. Uh, does that tie in with uh, uh, the whole principle of the of uh, you know acceptance of circumstances? Yes, I think so. I mean, you can. I'm not. There's a limit to which we can create our world, you know. And I, I get a bit frustrated with the, you know, guys who say, "Oh, you create your life." Well, 
not if you're, you know, born with no advantages and, mm. you know, and the idea that, you know, oh, you're, it's all in the mind. Well, it's not. When the goldfish dies, the goldfish dies, you know, no mm. amount of medicine or, you know, whatever yeah. is going to bring yeah. the goldfish back. So I think it is a combination of that. There's no doubt that how you approach situation. You know, the, there's scientific studies which show you make your own luck. And if you're an optimist, you're more likely to see a five-pound note dropped on the pavement than if you're a pe- pessimist. Well, again, that goes back to what you were talking about, about the, the way the, the, the brain is wired and, and how you can influence the way you look at the world. And I suppose the point about acceptance is not to say, I can't do anything, I'm, I'm a victim, I give up, but recognising that there are a set of circumstances and you need to work around them. Yes. Yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, and I think it's also important, forgiveness is important, because there's some interesting studies from South Africa. When they had the, when there was the Truth and Reconciliation Tribunals, actually they studied the people who went through them publicly, who went through them privately, and those people who didn't go through them at all. And the key difference in the people who could get on with their lives was the people who were prepared to forgive the person who had done the torture and were prepared to accept that that's it wasn't personal. That was a job that was being done, and I was, you know, the casualty of it. And he was the casual, you know, the torturer was the casualty of his own circumstances. You know, he probably didn't want to be on the wrong side, you know, side of the thing like that. But you have to be able to forgive these things. Otherwise, you know, you, you, you waste your life um, just being bitter. So there is, there's a whole sort of movement about, about forgiveness. And I think that is hugely important. So what would be, because I ask this to everybody really, what, what would you be advice to people who are suffering from mental health challenges? I think, you know, as, as you said, the thing is, it's almost this too will pass and be patient. And actually you've got to do what's right for you because there is a reason for why you feel. And I think one of the real troubles with depression is it's very difficult to know whether depression is due to exhaustion or whether it's due to lethargy and I think it's actually something you need to look at quite intently and it's a very difficult decision to make because if it's due to exhaustion then you're quite entitled to spend the day under the duvet the week under the duvet that's fine you know a month under the duvet if that's what it takes but equally if it's due to lethargy then what you need to do is to get out into the open air into the sunshine I think you've got to be kind to yourself it's absolutely crucial you know as I said learn compassion from my experiences and you have to be compassionate towards yourself and you have to say am I talking to myself as I would talk to my best friend in a similar situation you know, don't. But what would you say to your friend? You wouldn't say, "You stupid idiot, get out of bed." Why'd you do that? What's going on? You'd simply say, "Well, okay, you know, today just take it easy." You know, that's what. And you've got to treat yourself as your best friend, and and you'll have an ally for life. And and learning to stop this self chat. You know, the the way that we ruminate on thoughts, 
And I, there's two techniques that I was going to say. It's, all of this stuff's in the book, by the way. Mood mapping, the strat- first couple of chapters are about how to do it, and then it's about loads of strategies. We'll put the links in the in the Yeah, it's on, the, you know, it's on to Amazon. And it, it, it's not published anymore. You can get it on Kindle. But it's full of strategies. And, and two of the ones I talk about there are, first of all, having a worry hour. And, and these are not my, you know, you know, these are not ones I've invented. They're, they're well out there. And that's you say, okay, it's worry. I'm just going to worry about it between 9 a.m. and 10 a.m. every Monday morning or every day or whatever. So you don't waste time the rest of your day worrying about something. You just say, well, that comes to worry out. The other thing that's quite useful is to, is to tag thoughts. And that's if you, for instance, have a thought, oh, my God, the rent's due. Now, you've worried about the rent. You've done everything you can, et cetera. And so every time you get the thought that says the rent's due, you tag it with the thought, I'm doing everything I can. Now, there's no point arguing with your brain because it's going to win. It's been there. It's been doing it for as long as you're alive. Your brain's been arguing with you. So it's a bit like a small child. You just have to say, this is bedtime. You know, I've done everything I can for the rent end of conversation and it says it again you say i'm doing everything i can or you've got to choose your own tagline because there's no point wasting your energy arguing with with your brain you're not going to win so uh, um as you reflect on those things your own experiences do you have any uh, sort of overall observations about how people protect themselves from mental health issues the mind is just like the body you've got to keep yourself healthy and on the one hand it's like not doing unhealthy things so to a certain extent you've got to look after your mental health in the same way you need to look after your physical health and quite often when people are sort of young and they're teenagers they've got plenty of energy and they can get on with everything and, and energy is the key thing but as you get older you you have to be a bit more circumspect you you've got to preserve a certain amount of energy and, and ration it to a certain extent because you're not quite as energetic as you once were. And I do think that when people get stressed and exhausted, that is bad for mental health. And I think a huge amount of mental health problems come out of trauma and the way we mishandle that. And I think in the 21st century, I think if we can do nothing other than to learn to handle trauma better, I think we'll make great strides forward. So what, what's, what's next for you? What it is, first of all, I really I want to get more with the mood mapping. And I am working on this book, Biology and Being, which I want, I want, we need this synthesis so that we stop being frightened of things. And, I, and I'd like to think that I could make the neurosciences in some way accessible to people. Yeah. Doctors' opinions differ as much as economists. And actually, stifling the debate isn't going to make it go away. You know, we need to, everybody, and and basically a consensus view probably isn't too far wrong about what's sensible, what isn't sensible, what's the price we should pay for what benefit. And You know, it's really important that everybody's knowledge is up. Well, that's been really, really interesting. And and thank you so much for doing that. Um, Really, really interesting insights into how the mind works and and obviously your own experiences. Yeah, well, I'm really pleased, you know, as I say, this is part of the, you know, come out of adversity, part of my, you know, turning around adversity. Yes. 
Well, it was really good, Liz, and thank you so much. And I wish you the very best with the book. I'm gonna get it. You know, I need to get it written. And well, yeah, it there is that. There. I mean, I'm, it's like organising a page a day. Keeps the doctor yeah. away. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it's anyway, thank you so much. No, no, That's my pleasure. Absolute pleasure. And thank yeah. you so much. It's hard to imagine what being in the medical profession, specialising in neurology, suffering from bipolar and being sectioned must have been like. It reminds us that mental health has no boundaries. We are all vulnerable. Thankfully, people like Liz Miller are paving the way for a more enlightened and proactive view. But there is still much to do. In the final part of this mini-series, I talked to Michelle Morgan, an agency leader, ambassador for the Mental Health First Aid Organisation, and now the founder of PJOYS, a business born out of her mental health challenges. If you enjoyed this episode of Turning the Tables, please subscribe through your favourite podcast channel to be sure not to miss the next episode. Until next time, go safely.